This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Chronicles Magazine podcast. My name is CJ Ingle and I have today Paul Gottfried, of course, and we are very delighted to welcome our guest, Stanley Payne. Uh, Stanley is an author of many books on Franco and the Spanish Civil War and um, European fascism. He taught at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I think he's retired now, but we're, we're happy to be talking to him about the Spanish Civil War and some of the context of the conflict. So, uh, Professor Payne, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I was reading um, last night in preparation for this from one of your several books on the Spanish Civil War. And you mentioned the fact that it's probably the most important conflict that took place uh, in the West prior to World War II, and yet not a lot of Americans are aware of what happened and why it happened. And so that's why we're having this conversation here. So I guess my first question to you is, why is, impo- why is it important that people understand the Spanish Civil War? Well, it's the same question when you're raised about any major historical event. It's important simply to understand the background of what has happened. But the the Spanish War is interesting, uh, especially for its origins, Mm -hmm. and then also for the role it played in Spanish history and in European and international history more generally in the immediate background of World War II, even though it was apart from World War II and not part of the World War. And yet it did obviously play a role in the tensions that came up to the outbreak of that conflict. Paul, um, you, I mean, you've read more on the Spanish Civil War than I have. And, uh, you know, why do you think a lot of people haven't uh, studied the Spanish Civil War and why should they? Well, uh, I, I think an earlier generation uh, very definitely studied this. And I believe that Professor Payne may have been attracted to the subject because it was a very hot issue uh, for an entire generation uh, of, of academics and intellectuals who were heavily committed. To the Republican side, um, and uh, you know, saw these people as the good guys. Something like uh, the the history of the war, written by a American leftist like Paul Preston, would probably be fairly typical, you know, of what of what of the way they understood that conflict. It was really one of, of good against evil, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it was a very a very important subject. And they tended to see the war through uh, the side that I think Professor uh Payne has uh has has as critically analyzed in, in in most of his work. So I think that, I think that's one one reason it's important. Um I don't think the argument that it's that that you know we had to say this in graduate school Yale years ago we had to give an exam, you know, why is the Spanish Civil War a dress rehearsal for World War II? I'm not sure it was. Uh but I, I think as Professor Payne shows, uh, it is an extremely important ideological conflict. I mean, you see right against left, you know, the the uh, uh, the theme of much of the work of Ernst Nolte is about the Europäische Bürgerkrieg, the, the European Civil War, and you see it there, you know, you see right fighting left uh, in very stark, brutal terms. And it's a brutal war. I think, again, as Professor Payne points out, the number of deaths in proportion to the population is just is just staggering. So I think for all those reasons, it it is an important subject, and uh, you know I think it is it is well worth examining. F- finally, I, I, another point, and I hope Professor Payne has been involved in this, um, is that it is, remains an extremely hot issue in Spain mm. and throughout the Spanish speaking world. And you, you know, you have basically the forces of progress on one side, the Catholic Church, the landowners, the army on the other side, you know, the black and the red, yeah, I suppose, and you know, the French, uh, uh, the French saw things in the in the 19th century and during the Third Republic. But you you have this kind of, you know, this kind of it's very important for the present Spanish leftist government to do everything it can to discredit the nationalist side and show that they were Nazis. And that you know the good guys were all on the Republican side, and an historian like uh, Pio, uh, Pio Moa, who Professor Payne has introduced to the English-speaking world, uh, is very important because he does show the 
the leftist myths on which most of this is based. So um, at least in the Spanish speaking world, this, this remains an extremely um, uh, a significant issue. Mm -hmm. You say in the preface to one of your books, uh, you, you refer to Ortega y Gasset's injunction that the most important thing to understand about the war is the nature of its origins. So uh, why is that the most important thing and what are the nature of, of the origins? Uh, that's the most important thing uh, because the war had different causes and began in quite a rather a different way from what is usually supposed. Uh, and because the whole experience of the Second Spanish Republic that preceded the war, the breakdown of the Republic giving rise to the war, uh, is illustrative for the breakdown from within of Western democracies. It was the, the most extraordinary case of this, with the exception of the Weimar Republic in Germany. So uh, it, it is uh, informative. Uh, for general political processes, but uh, otherwise you can't really understand the war. Mm -hmm. uh, it explains then that the, 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 the grand camouflage of the war, the standard myth of the war, uh, is exactly that, is a, a deliberate misunderstanding, a, a redrawing of historical terms to favor a, a political cause. The origins of the world of war were rather different from what is supposed. The important thing to really about the Civil War historically is that it was a revolutionary, counter-revolutionary civil war. Now, Europe has had an entire genus of such civil wars uh, from 1917, 1918, down to the end of the Greek Civil War in 1949. However, these revolutionary, counter-revolutionary civil wars clustered around the end of World War I and the end of World War II. What was unique about the Spanish War is that it happened right in the middle of the interwar period mm -hmm. in the 1930s, when, in fact, the, the uh, political tendencies in European countries were not revolutionary, uh, but more in, in the other direction. And if the Spanish Revolution broke out in 1936, uh, it was a kind of a, a counter-current experience, <clears throat> but in its own terms, it fit within the general structure of the revolutionary, counter-revolutionary civil wars. Quite beyond that, of course, is the, the involvement of the major dictatorships in the civil war, which gave it much more of an international cast and obscured the fact that this was indeed a Spanish civil war, mm -hmm. a civil war between Spaniards. It's about, fundamentally about Spanish issues, though these issues, of course, had counterparts in other countries during that generation. Uh, so that uh, the misunderstanding of the war became very strong, particularly since the publicizing of the war was taken over in large part by the Comintern uh, and picked up by, as Paul has said, left liberal intellectuals around the world. So one has, therefore, the creation of the grand camouflage uh, that, in fact, there was no civil war in terms of revolution. There was civil war in terms of a revolt against democracy. Mm. Uh, the revolution simply was airbrushed out of the picture. And this has been remarkably successful. Uh, even uh, today in, in studies of revolution, you may not find much mention of the Spanish revolution because the, the historians of revolution are not interested in revolutions that lose, but only primarily in revolutions that win. Mm -hmm. Paul, do you have anything to say about the, the mischaracterizations about the Spanish Civil War? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it, it is very important um, as, as a myth. Uh, the, uh, I remember the, clo the closing line of homage to uh, Catalonia by um, Orwell is that, you know, the, the, the bad side, the, the, the bad side won <laughs> the, the Spanish Civil War. And I think as Professor Payne uh, very graphically shows, there really isn't a good side <laughs> in the war. Uh, if you want, I think the nationalist side was probably somewhat less dangerous or murderous if the other side had won, they probably would have killed more people and would have established a Soviet beachhead probably in, in Spain. But, uh, you know, it's very hard to find the good guys. Uh, although you can pick out some individuals, uh, you know, whom one can admire. Uh, they try to do their be the best in a very bad situation. But I, I, I think the, to, to use that word, sort of an overdetermined situation 
I mean, the, the conflicts are so deep and the sides are so irreconcilably divided that, you know, a peaceful resolution was not possible. There, there was some kind of, there, there have been various efforts to create a parliamentary government in Spain and uh, a parliamentary monarchy, a parliamentary republic. I, what exists in Spain today, I do not consider to be a constitutional democracy. It looks more like a leftist woke dictatorship taking over and marginalizing the other side, something similar to what's going on here, but in a much more extreme form. Um, but cert certainly, uh, you know, uh, by uh, soon after the Republic is set up in 1931, it's obvious that it has deep fissures. Um, and I think, again, as Professor Payne shows, there were a number of, of attempts made by the the, the radical left to overthrow the Republic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, the uprising in, in, in Asturias, in I, I think that was October uh, of 34, uh, was, was a well-orchestrated attempt to overthrow the government by, by the political left. So by the time you get to the, uh, the uprising uh, in July of 1930, the uprising of the military in July, or part of the military in July of 1936, um, the, the Republic is pretty much dead. You know, you're, you're either going to have some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of anarchist um, reign for a while, uh, the communists are then later step in, uh, or you're going to have some kind of right-wing uh, authoritarian government. But I think, uh, I think by, uh, by then it was obvious that this attempt at a parliamentary government had failed. <clears throat> Professor Payne, um, so why was the um, the republic that was set up in the early 1930s, why was it so unstable and who and who were some of the parties that were contesting it and what were their interests? Well, there had been a major hiatus in Spanish political history during the 1920s. The, in the, the temporary dictatorship of General uh, Primo de Rivera, who established a very mild mm -hmm. uh, authoritarian regime. Uh, that coincided with the great prosperity of the 1920s. The decade of the 20s had been the most remarkable time of development in all of Spanish history. And therefore, among a large part of the Spanish population, it gave rise to the most difficult and dangerous of all revolutions, which was simply the psychological, the socio-psychological revolution of rising expectations. Mm. The expectations, particularly of the Spanish left, were much higher in 1930 than they had been in 1920. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the government uh, left in charge after the collapse of the dictatorship uh, was very inept, very slow in moving back to parliamentary government. Uh, therefore, there was a kind of takeover by the left as a result of municipal elections only in 1931. Really, uh, what happened in Spain in 1931 to bring in the Republic was a kind of peaceful coup d'etat, a peaceful pronunciamiento, because it, uh, had, it was not a national contest, but the uh, Republican coalition simply seized the initiative and began to take power in Madrid, and they were not resisted. They mm -hmm. simply were allowed to take over. They brought in a new republic, uh, and it had a democratic constitution. It was structured as a liberal democratic state, but uh, it didn't work out that way in practice. It uh, uh, gave rise, in fact, to constant uh, impositions of um, either martial law or temporary suspension of guarantees. Uh, legal normality was rare under the Republic because of the constant disorder and, and the rebellions by the left. As Paul has said, there were three different revolutionary insurrections by the anarchists in the years 1932-33, every 10 months. And then the following year, 1934, there was a big revolutionary insurrection by the socialists and communists supported by part of the anarchists. So uh, revolutionary revolt against the Republic was a standard feature of, of the Republican years. Uh, and uh, probably the best definition of the Second Republic as a regime was given by the late Javier Tuchel, who was the dean of Spanish political historians in the late 20th century. He called it democracia por democratica, a not very democratic democracy. <laughs> and, and that really was the, the kind of regime the Second Republic was. But it did provide a kind of graphic illustration 
of how a political system can be decomposed from within mm -hmm. without any outside intervention if everything goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So, so um, what, what did the nationalists, what, what were their interests and what were they seeing as the problem here? Would, did they anticipate that there was sort of a communistic uh, revolution going on that they needed to respond to? Uh, yes, by the time the Civil War began, but it was rather hard to get to that point. Because, for example, the, the, the uh, final revolt against the left Republican government that was still in power in July 1936 was led by the military, that is, by half of the military, because the Spanish army split in two. That was the real cause of civil war, the fact that the army was not united. Had the army been united, there would have been no civil war. You've got a situation much more like Chile in 1973. But in fact, the army divided. And that was because the army had been tamed politically. Mm -hmm. The military were not chopping at the bit, really trying to come out in revolt, because there was a general uh, understanding among the Spanish army officers that military intervention in the preceding decade had really not worked out very well, and they didn't have necessarily that much popular support. Spain had become a very liberal country. The extreme right was very weak. Only the revolutionary left was strong among the extremes. And it was really uh, a major dilemma as to what to do. Slowly, a military conspiracy began to take shape. But then in 1936, as that was going on, the leading uh, figure in the Spanish military, General Francisco Franco, would not join the conspiracy for revolt. He said, this is going to be a very drastic alternative. It could mean total breakdown. Anything could happen. You could win, you could lose. It could easily make things worse. Let's just wait and see if things cannot get better normally. That was Franco's line. Don't do it. Uh, it could be very destructive. Let's hope that we can work it out some other way. And only when, of course, the final degenerative process, final violence had reached its maximum in July 1936, when the Republican police had kidnapped the spokesman of the opposition in parliament and then shot him uh, before they could even take him to jail, dump his body in a local cemetery, and did Franco agree that there was uh, really no alternative? They had to rebel against the left Republican government, which was operating in association with the violent mass revolutionary forces. Mm -hmm. Paul, would you say the instability of the Republican government um, was similar to the instability of the Weimar Republic in Germany? <clears throat> yeah. Um... There, there are a number of governments, by the way, in the interwar period, particularly after the Depression uh, hits, uh, hits the Western world. Um, there, there are a number of very unstable governments. For instance, in France, uh, there, are, there are attempts to overthrow the government, um, most violently by the nationalist right in, you know, in the mid-1930s. Um, the, uh, there are a number, a number of authoritarian governments that get set up in this period. Um, the, the, the the Spanish government of the 1920s under uh, was Miguel Primo de Rivera was probably one of the milder forms of of, of, of such governments. Uh, in in the in the case of Weimar Germany, um, it it was not entirely a surprise that the republic would turn into some kind of autocracy, particularly after the failure of the Brüning government to deal with the depression. Uh, what was perceived as the failure by the part of most Germans, um, and the fact that by then the you had a presidial dictatorship under Hindenburg, so, uh, what what is per perhaps the uh, you know the the horrible fate that was reserved for the Germans was that the dictatorship that they got was so horrible, um, but you know it, it it could have been a milder form of di of dictatorship. Um, but uh, I, I think generally parliamentary governments aren't stable in Europe. The only place, or one of the few places where they seem to be stable is in England, probably in Switzerland, some other small countries. But the, 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 the instability of parliamentary government, particularly after the Depression, uh, is a common characteristic of, of continental governments. Um, I, I think, though, the Spanish, obviously, the, the Spanish Civil War does stand out for all the reasons Professor Payne gives, uh, because of its violence, uh, because of how profoundly divided the country is, and because it continues to resonate. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, there's sides that are still being taken, usually pro-Republican sides. The others have been, you know, have been quieted down because the left is so dominant now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, uh, the rupture and the conflicts and so forth uh, that you find in the Spanish Civil War, you know, uh, continue down to the present. And you know, one of the things that I that I argue in my book on anti-fascism is that these um, uh, is that the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War uh, is seen as you know a, a quintessential left, a kind of paradigmatic left, uh, and uh, you know, American and uh, non-Spanish leftists still continue to pay tribute to the Republican side. <clears throat> You've described um, the Spanish Civil War in some senses as sort of a proxy war for the interests of greater Europe. Um, what are their proxy aspects to uh, the Republican government in the 1930s? What, what were the international relations like in the in the early 30s before the Civil War to Professor uh, Payne? The... Uh... International situation, of course, in the early 30s had been relatively stable, and Mussolini only intended to expand in Africa, so that Mussolini found himself in the situation of being a leader of an anti-German front in Mm -hmm. 1934-35, the the so-called Slesa front, which lasted only a matter of months, not very long, but until the expansion of Germany began, really, in 1936, uh, the situation had had been stable internationally. Uh, I have to remember that during the course of the 1930s, half the governments in Europe turned into authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. The fact that there was an authoritarian outcome in Europe meant that Spain moved in the direction of all the major changes in European affairs during the 1930s. The only leftist regime was, in fact, the uh, Soviet Union. And the instability in the Spanish Republic was quite extraordinary. It was by far uh, the most extreme of any country in Europe or the world at that time, uh, and much more so than the Weimar Republic in the 1930s. Weimar had been very unstable in the early years between 1919 and 1923. Hmm. Of course, the political situation was partly controlled by a suspension of constitutional guarantees. Uh, to some extent uh, in the last years of Weimar. Spain was by far the most unstable place exclusively for Spanish conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea of a proxy war is completely exaggerated. It was not a proxy war. Mm-hmm. This was the, the idea sold, particularly by leftist propaganda during the war, that it was a war by Germany and Italy, which was not the case. The origins were exclusively Spanish for war whatsoever. The Soviet Union had been intervening. The Soviet Union had been intervening politically, not militarily. So the Union was delighted with the development of uh, Spanish affairs in the first half of 1936. The reports by Comintern advisors from Spain were absolutely ecstatic uh, in April. If you can hear me, Professor Payne, I'm going to I'm going to step in here and and ask Paul a question because I think your internet's glitching a little bit. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask Paul real quick if, you know, what he thinks of the, you know, why was there a narrative about the international uh, proxy war? You know, why did that come into being? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's basically because the both, well, both sides would be happy, would have been happy to internationalize the world, but the left was more successful. You know, they, their cause seemed to resonate more among intellectuals. Professor Payne is absolutely correct to point out it was not a proxy war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soviets were happy, you know, to sell lots of stuff and get good money from the Republican side. They took advantage. They didn't send many troops, which I learned from reading Professor Payne. Um, and, you know, they, they did profit from the war. It also created instability, you know, in, in, in Western Europe. Um, and they were happy to see the Germans drawn into the war because they thought that, you know, they kept busy in Spain. Um, the, the only foreign po- power, uh, and here I, I, I do depend on uh, Pio Moa and Professor Payne, the only foreign power that seems to have uh, been able to use the war extensively, uh, although they, they lost lots of troops, I think, I think they lost something like 50 or 60,000 soldiers they sent in there with the, with the, with the Italian government. Um, and I, I think this is very important for the Italian government because people up until then, you know, are unsure 
where do you place fascism on the political spectrum? And there were many people placed it on the left, you know, contrary to what we hear now, but, you know, Mussolini was regarded as a progressive. He was praised in the New Republic. Uh, there were many people on the left, as John Diggins shows in, in, in a book on how Mussolini is viewed in the United States, who consider him a very progressive leader. You know, he had a social democrat of some kind. Um, so there was still a certain ambiguity, even after the Lateran Pact of 1929, you know, where you placed him. However, once he intervenes massively on the conservative nationalist side in the Spanish Civil War, he because, I think he's viewed very much as a man of the right. You know, uh, all, all ambiguity is gone. But I, I think up until um, up until that, there is that you know that, that the people were still debating where you locate him on the political spectrum. Um, but the, the the there was of course an international brigade, and here again I depend on Stanley's work. There's an international brigade, um, but they were they were used up, you know, by by the uh, by the Republican side. They were not treated very well. Um, and there, there weren't as many of them, you know, as the left wanted to claim. Um, although, although they, they did include intellectuals, you know, and artists and so and so forth. But the, I, I think the argument that the war is international in character generally serves the cause of the left. You know, we're all getting together and fighting fascism. That's what the war is about. And and that that remains the dominant myth about the war even now. Um, but it was, you know, it was a very, a, a very much of a Spanish war, you know, being fought by the sides that hated each other, you know, uh, uh, historically in Spain. Uh, and the, the outside help was, uh, you know, was sort of incidental. I think Professor Payne also has made the point that the, the outcome of the war probably would have been the same. The, the, only, uh, the only difference it might have made was, you know, how the nationalist side were able to move from North Africa to Spain at the beginning. And there they did depend on Italians, uh, Navy and others to come to their, their aid. But uh, it's quite possible the war would have ended the way it did, even without any kind of international support. Professor Payne, did the Soviet Union and communism, you know, what role did it play in, this, in the Civil War? Uh, Soviet Union played a very important role in the Civil War, but the role tended to shift. Uh, at the beginning of the Republic, Spanish Communist Party was totally insignificant. But with the radicalization of Spanish politics during the course of the Republic, the party became more and more important, uh, particularly in the last years of the Republic mm -hmm. in 1935 and 1936. Uh, and uh, by 1936, in fact, the greatest, the only really great victory, you might say, of the new Comintern Soviet tactic of the leftist popular front was one in Spain. And there they had a situation where the popular front had not merely won elections, but had taken over all power and, and virtually all the institutions except for the army, and therefore was in position to move into a revolution without a breakdown. You have, for the first time, a change in communist tactics. Ever since 1917, the Leninist tactic had been to get to the revolution you have to have an insurrection and a civil war. You have to have mass violence. And that's how you, you, you carry it off. In Spain, there's a different tactic, the popular front tactic, whereby you use the institutions of democracy and established mm. government to change the power structure from within, and that can facilitate the revolution. This was what was happening in Spain. So the, the Soviet policy on the eve of the civil war was to try to moderate the situation to avoid a civil war because everything was going perfectly in the direction of the revolutionaries and a civil war would only complicate things. The Soviet judgment was entirely correct. No question about that. It was entirely uh, correct that, that things were going much better for the left without a civil war. And the civil war did complicate things for the left to the extent that it lost. The uh, idea of proxy war developed only six months in to the civil war after both the foreign powers began to uh, intervene. And each was following its own foreign policy. Uh, Italy wanted to see the right win in Spain to facilitate the internet policy of the uh, Italian regime throughout the Mediterranean, Southern Europe, to create counter-revolutionary governments that would be more aligned with fascist Italy. Germany wanted to see the right win basically to counter French policy and the Soviet policy mm -hmm. as a kind of international checkerboard thing. 
and the Soviets were trying to promote the revolutionary process. Mm-hmm. But they had to keep it under wraps as a kind of camouflage revolution to pretend that this was just democracy. Stalin wrote personal letters to the revolutionary president of uh, the, revol- the revolutionary prime minister of the republic, Largo Caballero, who was the head of the, the socialist revolutionary, saying, You've got to tone down the revolution. You're giving the game away. We have to present ourselves as a democratic republic like France. It's important for the balance of power on our side to win the support of democracies like Britain and France. That was the whole Soviet idea. The uh, Soviet intervention was probably a little too complicated and too cute to be able to pull off. On the one hand, uh, the desire was to encourage the situation of the Comintern in Europe by having another revolutionary regime, but on the other, to also encourage collective security against Germany and Italy. And these two goals could not be combined in the same package. It would simply be too contradictory. The Soviets ended up undercutting themselves. They made the revolution seem so menacing, despite all the propaganda about democracy, that uh, the British were completely turned off. The British government would not have anything to do with the Spanish Civil War one, one way or the other. And even the French government would not go too far because all, all the more conservative forces in France had become psychologically and politically mobilized on the side of the Spanish nationalists and against the revolution. So Soviet policy was simply too complicated. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to do two rather contradictory things at the same time, encourage the revolution, encourage the left, but encourage collective security against Germany. They couldn't pull the whole thing off. And as early as the beginning of 1938, well over a year before the end of the Civil War, the Soviet representatives made it clear to uh, their counterparts in the League of Nations, also to uh, indirectly to Germans and Italians, that uh, they would be willing to withdraw uh, any Soviet forces from Spain. The very Soviet military manpower is mainly providing materiel in large amounts to Spain. The Soviet involvement in Spain was, in that sense, rather more analogous to the American involvement in Ukraine right now Mm -hmm. uh, than to a full-scale military intervention. There was not any full-scale military intervention. There was a large-scale Italian intervention, uh, as Paul has mentioned, but the Soviet thing was very measured. They were willing to pull out in the last year of the Civil War if Germany and Italy would withdraw all forces from Spain as well. Uh, and just to have an agreement on a kind of a, a, a sort of a neutralist government in Spain, not a leftist revolutionary government, but not Franco either. That too was too complicated, a kind of compromise deal to pull out. So the Soviet uh, uh, diplomacy was simply overly complex uh, trying to overdo it uh, in terms of contradictory goals, restoring the main part of the Civil War. And then during the last year, when they're trying to look for some sort of uh, face-saving solution to defeat in the Civil War uh, in 1938-39. It seems like having a compromise government is the very thing that caused the Civil War in the first place. <laughs> uh, well, the fact that uh, the left refused to accept any compromises demanded complete control of all mm-hmm. Spanish institutions and complete coverage for the revolutionary process, which the moderate left said would fizzle out after a while. Therefore, they must be allowed to continue and, and not be uh, throttled in any very significant way. Uh, the absolute rejection of compromise the board of the left Republican government was the proximate cause of the Civil War. It simply refused to do anything to try to reconcile the other side. Was there any American involvement or interest like from the FDR administration? Were they involved at all? American policy was not involved in Spanish affairs at all during the Republic at the beginning of the Civil War. Okay. Uh, and uh, the initial coverage of the Civil War in the American press was not so favorable for the revolution. You look in uh, October 1936, the front pages of the New York Times are rather uh, uh, frightening stories of the violence of the revolution in Spain mm-hmm. at that point. That all began to change, particularly in 1937, 1938, uh, with the mobilization of uh, opposition to Germany, the association of Germany with the Franco government uh, and uh, the general mood of uh, opinion is mobilized by the left in the United States. American public opinion swung against the Spanish nationalists 
And Roosevelt would have liked to have done something, but of course, the embargo acts had been passed in the United States. And even military materiel could not be given to belligerent powers, could not be sold to belligerent powers. Roosevelt tried to find a clandestine way around that. He developed a scheme through one of his relatives to promote the export of military material from the United States by way of Mexico as Mexican goods to Spain. But this clandestine route, again, was so complicated, it simply could not be pulled off. And after some months, Roosevelt had to give up that idea altogether. Mm -hmm. So the, the United States was not involved, but most American opinion was on the side of the left, not as revolutionaries, but as supposed Democrats. Mm -hmm. The propaganda camouflage really worked pretty well in American opinion, except with American Catholics. Mm -hmm. American Catholics were not fooled and took a strong stand on behalf of Franco throughout the Civil War. Uh, Paul, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I, I'm sort of like looking at, at the American reaction. So it's something that I have studied. Uh, Truman in his diaries, uh, this, this is long after the Spanish Civil War, uh, holds it against Franklin Roosevelt that he did not come to the anti-fascist side in the Spanish Civil War, which I find remarkable because, you know, Truman uh, was not a radical leftist Democrat. He was, I suppose, he was sort of center left or uh, in, in, in his time. But uh, uh, I, I suspect his Baptist background may have made him take that position because the Baptist church in the United States was very anti-Catholic and generally sided with the Republicans, although they did not have the same political views, but it was the opposition to the Catholic Church that was strong. Um, well, one of the things that Joseph Kennedy told uh, Franklin Roosevelt is if he sides with the Spanish Republic, no Catholic is going to vote for him. And I, I did study the matter. And I think as, as Stanley points out, they do lean, Catholics do lean toward the nationalist side, but they don't feel, most of them don't feel very strongly about it. You know, it's, it's not what we'd call a wedge issue, you know, mm -hmm. although the, the Catholic tablet and so forth, some of these newspapers came out for the nationalist side, but most Catholics seem to be sort of mostly indifferent, even if they lean somewhat toward the nationalist side because the Republicans were so violently anti-clerical. So uh, in any case, it was not a particularly deep issue in the United States, except among intellectuals. Mm -hmm. You know, who were overwhelmingly on, on on the Republican side, as one might guess, and many of them volunteered for the international, or at least some of them in, volunteered for the international brigade. Um, <clears throat> but the um, uh, most Americans seem to be quite distant from it. Um, uh, I, uh, as things said, Franklin Roosevelt does become interested and wants to send arms through Mexico. Um, once it looks like the side that Hitler is backing uh, is going to win, but you know the. Uh, the the the, uh, the major concern there was that Nazi Germany is going to get a foothold in Spain, you know, which they're going to use against the French, um, and uh, <clears throat> try to you know try try to create a, a larger Nazi empire. But what was happening in Spain was not a particular interest, and you know until the German involvement became became conspicuous. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, General Franco. Now, what was his background and, and what caused him, what did he see in the Civil War and what caused him to take action? Uh, Franco was a professional military man. Uh, he was conservative. Uh, even beyond being conservative, he was absolutely right wing. On the other hand, he'd been very professional and he had never been involved in politics before the Republic and tried to stay out during the early years of the Republic. In fact, he was promoted during the middle years of the Republic by the center democratic forces. Mm -hmm. As a professional military man who was certainly anti-leftist, but was not involved in politics, he became the, the main figure of uh, the, the centrist governments in 1934 and 1935. And that had brought him to even greater prominence in Spanish military affairs again. As I indicated earlier, he was very cautious as far as uh, getting involved in the military conspiracy or start helping to start a civil war because uh, he realized it was very dangerous and it could go either way. The left, the right was not in a good position at the beginning necessarily to win the civil war. Uh, but Franco realized that they could not necessarily carry all the army with them 
and therefore it could be a genuine civil war, not merely an overthrow of the left revolutionary government. On the other hand, Franco himself was radicalized by the civil war. Mm -hmm. He'd been reading a lot about politics in 1934-35 and trying to give himself a political education on the eve of the civil war. And as he saw the, the, the civil war kind of blow up in the face of both sides, the left had failed to control the situation going into the revolution, therefore had to fight a civil war. On the other hand, the right had also failed to control the initial civil war situation because they were not strong enough and the full revolution had broken out. This had now become, by the end of the first month of the civil war, a complete 100% revolution in the Republican zone. And Franco very soon came to the conclusion that in the future, Spain could not go back to a democratic republic. There was no democratic republic left. Spain had to have a counter-revolutionary government, and that meant an authoritarian right-wing government, who better than himself, as all of his friends and supporters were telling him, uh, to be the leader of that right-wing government. And so he was named commander-in-chief of the military and uh, chief of the civilian government as well. He was really a uh, voted dictator by his army colleagues in the army high command in a meeting of the military junta at the end of September, 1936. And from the 1st of October, he was the dictator of nationalist Spain and went on from there to the very end of his life in 1975, nearly 40 years later. Mm -hmm. uh, Franco was not a fascist, didn't really understand fascism, but he realized that a right-wing dictatorship had to be organized had to be institutionalized, had to have a doctrine, it had to have a philosophy, it had to have a political structure. It couldn't be like the military governments in the 1920s. It couldn't be a short-term kind of Latin American type of affair. It had to be an organized regime. And therefore he wanted to give it some real structure. And he set up a state party in 1937 that took over and incorporated the Spanish fascist party. This is what made it possible then for all the, the enemies of Franco to say that Franco was a fascist. Not really. He took over the Spanish fascist party in a new organization that did uh, adopt the phalangist ideology, but made it clear at the very beginning that this was a union of all the political forces and that it had not achieved final definition and that it had a working structure but it was going to be developed uh, probably in, in a, a broader manner later on with the victory of the Civil War and the reorganization of Spanish affairs. That is, Franco's state party was not simply a fascist party, but had a major fascist component. It was an eclectic right-wing party. Mm -hmm. So that Franco operated a, what you could call a kind of semi-pluralist right-wing government. If fascism had won World War II, undoubtedly Spain would have become more fascist. That was not the case. The Franco regime evolved more and more in a semi-pluralist direction, became a, a more and more moderate kind of authoritarianism. And uh, Franco avoided the great mistake of Mussolini of getting involved in World War II. And so he was able to die in bed. And in the latter part of his life, his regime was a much more moderate kind of regime uh, than it had been during the first years of the highly violent highly confrontational civil war. What happened during the civil war that, that put put things in favor of the nationalists? Um, because at the beginning, it didn't look like the right could win, um, but what changed? The great blunder made by the revolutionaries at the very beginning simply was the revolution. They had the chance being given arms by the left Republican government. Left Republican government virtually handed power to the revolutionaries. Took the position that you can't trust any Spanish army officer to speak uh, in any significant way. Uh, they have to be subordinated in a, a different fashion. Therefore, it refused to use the half of the Spanish army that didn't rebel uh, simply to fight the half that did rebel, saying that the half that did not rebel was itself untrustworthy. That may have been the case, and that may not have been the case. They handed armed power to the revolutionaries, armed the mass revolutionary movement, saw that everyone had a rifle, this created chaos behind the lines, and the revolutionaries, to no one's surprise, 
were more interested in having a revolution, murdering their political enemies, looting things, uh, carrying out revolutionary takeovers, collectivizing the economy, and they weren't fighting the civil war. These other things are all much more fun than fighting a civil war. So this gave the nationalists a breathing space and the advantage of, of that they were led by professional army officers, they were militarily more expert, and they put together a, a, a stronger military effort. The best thing that happened to Franco and his side was the revolution on the other side. Mm -hmm. Because it meant the Spaniards in the middle could no longer support the, what was left of the Republic. They really, uh, if they wanted to preserve their property, if they wanted to preserve life and limb, they had pretty much to go over to Franco. So a lot of the Spaniards in the middle did go over to Franco. Mm. And on the other hand, it changed the military equation. The revolutionary militia simply could not fight. They were not an army, they were a revolutionary militia. So from that point on, the nationalists began to win. Uh, and uh, that was really what changed the military equation. But Franco also saw that military equipment was very slight and weak in Spain, and that to, to do well, uh, his forces would need more and better arms he asked for military equipment from uh, Italy and Germany, and he got it. Uh, both Hitler and, uh, and Mussolini decided to send military equipment. And in fact, uh, later on, when the Civil War became more tense, Mussolini said that he would send a corps of Italian infantry as well. And Hitler said that he would send a contingent of German airplanes staffed by German pilots together with a few German tanks. So there were German and Italian military units as well, but it was above all the superior quality of the professionally led nationalist army that mm -hmm. gave them the edge of the civil war. Stalin supported the other side. Stalin sent in the best Soviet military equipment to the Republic. Therefore, the Republicans ended up after a few months with the only real tanks in the civil war. They ended up with the best airplanes in the civil war, but Stalin sent very few Soviet military personnel. Mm -hmm. So as I say, it was really almost close to the situation of the United States and Ukraine, not quite, because Stalin did send some hundreds of Soviet combat personnel to Spain, just a small number. It was a little different. Okay, so why Franco? Then did did, did the military look to anyone else? Like what, what made Franco the person of their of their choice to lead the counter-revolution? Uh, the effort against the revolution was led by the military, but the military did not have a single leader. And some of the uh, military chiefs said, we have to have a commander-in-chief. Mm -hmm. With the commander-in-chief, you can win. Without a commander-in-chief, uh, if, if we're going to be led by a committee, uh, we're probably going to lose. And if there's going to be a commander-in-chief, really there was no other alternative. Franco had so much more prestige than any other single figure. There's so much more respected politically and militarily that he had to be the one. Mm -hmm. And uh, once that situation began to develop, he took the opportunity and he ran with it. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was not a prima donna once he found that his colleagues would elect him commander in chief and in effect dictator. He said, fine, I will be dictator and I will take charge. I will win this thing. We'll have a, a new government, a new regime and a new kind of Spain. Uh, and in fact, actually, he made good on all those things, mm -hmm. though the outcome was very uncertain when he took over on the 1st of October, 1936. Talk about Franco's relationship with the Catholic Church. I mean, he himself was was personally committed to the Catholic Church. Is that right? And what role did that play for him? Uh, he, he was, a, by Spanish standards, a, a, a reasonably devout Catholic. Mm -hmm. He was a believing Catholic. A, a totally committed Catholic. Uh, he was also a, a soldier who learned to become a politician. Mm. Uh, and since the Republican government had separated church and state, uh, and since there was much conflict about that, when he began his regime, he did not propose any change in the separation of church and state, but simply to put a, a, an end to the ferocious mass violent religious persecution of the church uh, by the revolutionaries, the slaughter of priests, the, the burning of church buildings by the hundreds, put an end to all that sort of thing. 
and basically to adopt a formula whereby the church would be free within a non-Catholic state. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, since it became, after the first months, really more and more a kind of war of religion, just as much or even more than a revolutionary civil war, the sort of thing that Lenin was able to avoid altogether in Russia in 1918. A great mistake made the Spanish revolutionaries was turning the Spanish Civil War into a war of religion. Mm -hmm. Catholics rallied to Franco en masse, and uh, he agreed that this was going to have to be more of a Catholic regime, began to uh, identify the new Spanish uh, state more and more with Catholicism and looking for a, a new agreement, what he hoped would be a concordat with the church by the end of the Civil War. It had become a, a very officially Catholic regime. The surprise for Franco came at the end of the Civil War. After his regime had done everything to support the church during the conflict, he found that once it was all over with, the Vatican did not want to sign a concordat. Mm. Why was that? It was an ultra-Catholic regime. The Vatican did not want to sign a concordat because the Vatican had been burned by the earlier concordats with Italy and with Germany. Not when it could burned again, the Franco regime was now identified with fascism and had a bad reputation uh, in the liberal part of the Western world. And therefore the Vatican simply wanted to maintain good relations, but not have an official identification with the Franco regime. And so the Concordat was only signed in 1953, 14 years later, long after the Civil War had ended, after the Franco regime had been partially rehabilitated following the close of World War II. Mm -hmm. I have one last question that I want to ask of, of Paul and Professor Payne. But first, uh, Paul, can you hear me? Okay, I think we lost Paul. So I'll just ask it of you, and then I'll catch up with Paul later. But in your estimation, how would you judge, um, you know, Franco's early years, and then as leader of Spain going into World War II? Do you have any comments on his uh, on the role that he played, or whether he fulfilled his vision of acting, uh, you know, in, in the in the interests of Spain? Uh, Franco, in the long run, accomplished a significant part of what he had set out to do. But what he had intended to do, and that he was doing for some time, was creating a permanent political alternative in Spain. Mm -hmm. Liberal constitutional government does not work. Uh, you have to have an institutionalized right-wing uh, patriotic nationalist regime. Uh, that part in the long run did not work or survived as long as he survived. Uh, he had a very difficult task in terms of international relations because the Second World War began in Europe six months after the end of the Civil War, and it was clear to Franco that the only position Spain could take before World War II was neutrality. Franco declared neutrality immediately, and then he did what many other governments in Europe wanted to do after the fall of France, after Hitler had won everything in the West in 1940, he tried to line Spain up with the winning side, moved into a strongly pro-German position in 1940, and maintain that pro-German position for three years, practically down to the end of 1943. However, he did not become a belligerent. Mm -hmm. He did not actually enter the war. He considered very seriously, negotiated with Hitler. He was certainly on the German side in World War II down to 1943, and even sentimentally after that time. But he realized it was very complicated, very dangerous to take the plunge. He insisted on enormous quid pro quos, the handover of all of Morocco to Spain, which was complicated for Hitler because Vichy France was Germany's ally for, for the uh, uh, middle part of the war. And that was very difficult for Hitler to do politically. And also enormous amount of military and economic supplies because Spain was simply too weak, both militarily and economically, to be involved in the war. Mm -hmm. And Hitler could not meet all of Franco's demands. So you even take the point of view, it was Hitler rather than Franco who decided that Spain would not enter the war because he could not or would not meet Franco's demands. Franco, on the other hand, had the clarity of mind to realize that without special assistance, it would be suicidal to come into the war. And mm -hmm. therefore, he did not make the Mussolini mistake. Franco therefore survived, Mussolini did not. Mm. 
Italy had been a little bit the model in the Spanish regime, not completely, but, but partly the model. Franco did it much better and survived down to the end. He wanted to make Spain uh, economically modern and prosperous. He made Spain economically modern and prosperous. He did not succeed in institutionalizing his regime, mm. did not maintain the religious counter-revolution, the kind of neo-traditionist Catholic society. That simply could not happen because that was Franco's contradiction. Right. His economic modernization simply could not go with his cultural and religious traditionalism. Mm. The two did not fit together. So he lost out on the one. He succeeded at least on the other. Yeah, he behaved very vindictively after winning the war, and he killed tens of thousands of people on the other side, um, which he probably didn't have to do. I think it was a sort of a, a excessive cruelty um, or brutality. Um, the, the other thing I've never understood um, is how badly he chose uh, a successor. I mean, the, the present um, occupant of the Spanish throne is, is, is not very bright. He's given in just about everything the left wants. He never stands in their way. Um, Franco had, had other people he could have picked uh, to, to succeed him. Uh, this, this person is obviously a very weak read on which to base any kind of traditional Spanish society. Uh, wokeness in Spain has gone well beyond what has happened here. And they've done things like desecrate graves, exhume bodies of people on the other side in the Spanish Civil War. Um, the, the left, the left seems, seems to be uh, uncontrolled in uh, the kind of iconoclastic, uh, nihilistic violence that it's committed to, um, if not in terms of people getting killed, certainly in terms of the, uh, uh, of the culture it has created uh, in Spain today. It's worse than it was under the Republic. You know, just as I argue, wokeness is more radical than communism. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, much of this has happened under a very, very weak king. And I don't think Franco picked his successor very well. Uh, another thing is that you know, he went from supporting a civil constitution that uh, separated church and state to imposing religious controls on everything. I mean, he did not allow Protestants to worship in Spain mm -hmm. uh, unless they worship somebody's home. They could not uh, have places of worship. Uh, I mean, it was a very intolerant counter-reformation regime that he ends up setting. Up. He, is, he is a religious devout Catholic, uh, obviously, but the, the lens to which he went to marginalize other religions, I think, was probably unnecessary. Um, so that's that's something else that I don't hold. I, I would say that my view of Franco was much more negative than it was before I read Stanley Payne and other people whose views I respect. Mm -hmm. um, the the historian Pio Moa, whom he's, you know, whom he's uh, with whom he has worked, is much more pro Franco than than Stanley is. But I I think Stanley's criticism is well taken. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I haven't read a lot about, you know, I've, I've always um, instinctually, not always, but I've instinctually taken sort of the nationalist side just right. because of, but um, I haven't spent a lot of time in studying Franco's, you know, in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, no, I, I too have always taken the nationalist side, basically because I find the Republicans so nauseating, right. <laughs> violent, brutal, and they, and they get an entirely undeserved favorable press, you know, in in Western democracies. Right. So that, that sort of pushed me toward the nationalist side. And certainly, you know, in, in the last few decades of his rule, Franco was a benevolent ruler, you know, and mm -hmm. he did modernize the country. Um, it was uh, certainly in comparison to any communist dictatorship. It was, uh, you know, a, a decent regime. And I, you know, I respected his conservatism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> You know, some people who take the nationalist side just think that he capitulated to NATO basically at the end and kind right. of gave up on his own vision. Uh -huh. No, I think yeah. that's true. And some Catholic conservatives complain about that. And I think they're right. And, you know, Spain does become Americanized. And right. that may have been the slippery slope leading to its present uh, woke uh, cultural condition and, and woke politics. All right. Last question here. Um there's a lot of topics that you could have delved into, um, but what what made you interested in the Spanish Civil War and the experience of Spain in the 20th century? Well, I, I came into Spain in 
1958, when I first did research there, this was less than 20 years after the end of the Civil War. So the shadow of the Civil War is still great at that time. And the Civil War was part of living memory in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, by the 1980s and 90s, that had all faded away, but it was part of living memory and it had been the, the great Spanish event. Uh, I did not propose uh, to, to, to do the Civil War. Uh, so that was too big a topic for a beginning historian. I was simply going uh, dealing with the breakdown of Spanish politics and the rise of a specifically fascist kind of political variant. That was my first book. Mm -hmm. And then I, I developed that further into the, the real power actor on the Spanish right, working on the Spanish military. So I didn't really turn to the Civil War as a topic for quite a long time. But I realized uh, by the uh, beginning of the 21st century, as I was nearing the latter phase of my own career, there still remained an enormous amount of confusion about the Civil War. And that it was important really to write about the Civil War again and simply try to straighten things out, not to write another long, detailed thousand page history of the Civil War, simply explain what was going on, what were the power factors, what uh, were the main influences, and why did things work out the way they did? Well, I've been fascinated by your your various books, and I I would urge anyone listening to this to pick up your, you know, you've done a biography of, of Franco, and you've done um, you know numerous books on different aspects of the Civil War and you know the Spanish uh, fascist experience. So I appreciate your time here today, and I would urge anybody listening to this to pick up uh, one or more of your books. But uh, thank you, Professor Payne, for your time today. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.